Thank you for downloading this episode of AccuTrainee's Conversations in Law, with me, your host, Hobbs DeCoe. In this episode, we discuss the importance of diversity and inclusion within the legal profession. Whilst this topic has always been important, it has become more so as law firms have been put under scrutiny for the lack of diversity, particularly in the upper echelons of firms. To discuss this topic and the importance to both the individual and the business, I am joined by Dr Catherine McGregor. Catherine started out her career as a university lecturer, but since then has started the Chambers Women in Law Initiative, and whilst editor of GC magazine, she produced a number of insightful reports into diversity and inclusion in the in-house legal profession. Currently, she is an independent advisor to law firms and legal departments, with a key focus on analysing the practical steps in creating diversity and inclusion initiatives. But as if that wasn't enough, Catherine is also an ambassador for Global Leaders in Law and has recently published the book Business Thinking in Practice for In-House Counsel. It looks at the essential human-centred business skills and how these are impacting and changing how legal departments work. It's available at her publisher, globelawandbusiness.com, as well as Amazon and Waterstones. I hope you enjoy this episode. Thank you for joining me today, Catherine. Thank you, Hobbs. It's nice to be here. Glad to have you on on today's show. So my first question would be, there are very clear moral and ethical reasons for having a strong diversity and inclusion policy. I've heard people at law fairs, etc. say it's uh, nice to have a diverse and inclusive work environment. But what are the business benefits to it? Well, there are many and there's quite a lot of hard evidence um, that's been collected over the years to show that all businesses... Uh, really are more successful when they have diverse workforces. Um, I think the most well-known are the the figures that McKinsey has collected over the years, which show that if you've got a truly culturally, ethnic and gender diverse workforce, you're more likely to be 33% more profitable than similar companies who are not diverse in their workforces. So um, it clearly affects the bottom line. Um, I would add that, you know, alongside that, what you've also got increasingly as an imperative for all businesses, but it's becoming um, very key in the legal profession going forward, is innovation. Um, I think law has been less innovative than some other sectors, but we see now that There's a real demand from clients for more innovation from their legal service suppliers. And we have new types of suppliers popping up to satisfy that need alongside the more traditional law firm. Now, one of the key ingredients you need for innovation is actually diversity of thought. And of course, unless you've got a truly diverse workforce, you're not going to get that. And I think that, you know, It's not enough to say, oh, we have people who have lots of different backgrounds, but they're maybe all, you know, white and middle class. Well, that's not really going to cut it. You do need people with a significant different world experience that they can bring to the table to really have true innovation. And the other issue around that is that if you don't have enough diversity of thought, whether you're a law firm or or whether you're just a regular sort of company, you are going to be more at risk um, because groupthink does produce more likelihood of risk events. So, so from a sort of more proactive creativity and innovation point of view, it's great. That's also going to ensure 
you're likely to be a business that that is keeping up with developments, um, is not getting left behind by by other disruptors in the market. But then also from ensuring that that you're essentially um, doing the right thing, it's more likely to be the case if, if you have a more diverse workforce. And I think particularly in the legal profession, we're seeing more and more clients demanding that from their suppliers, that there is true diversity. And I think that's only going to increase. Um, we've, we've seen that, you know, be a constant theme over the last 20 years. And I think increasingly um, the new generation of general counsel coming into role will expect that as, as a given from their law firms and, and seriously start to question even if they are a law firm with a great brand, should they be using a firm that doesn't have a cultural fit to their own organisation? So you mentioned there that sort of clients are beginning to scrutinise who they're going to for legal services. Do you think there's a risk, I suppose, of law firms sort of tokenising minority groups to appease uh, clients? Uh, I don't think there's a risk. I think it's happened a lot. And I think, I think sadly, it still continues to happen. I've heard stories of, um, you know, from female partners in law firms that they're, they're sort of rolled out for the pitch to a particular client, and then they never are seen again on the work. Um, I've heard stories from clients of, you know, there being um an ethnically diverse lawyer in the pitch session who again they never see appear on the work ever again um i think a lot of clients are sort of getting wise to that and asking for uh you know real details of who will be working on my matters not just the partners but also uh the associates even even down maybe to trainees if if there are going to be trainees working on it and and you know what what are those people's backgrounds um i know of many clients who are specifically making an ask for a diverse team on their matters um i've also heard of clients asking law firms increasingly about their culture um i think that's you know the sort of being able to sort of um use smoke and mirrors is not is is going to put you in a worse position than if you actually sort of fessed up as a firm and said look you know client we have a diversity problem um yeah we're not as diverse as you would like us to be frankly we're not as diverse as we'd like to be perhaps there are ways we can work together to change that i think trying to pretend that you know, you're sort of the United Nations um, and, uh, and swapping people in and, and, and trying to pull a fast one is actually going to be worse than just saying, look, yeah, we're not doing as well as we could be. Perhaps we can we can find ways to learn from you, because the fact is many corporates are much more diverse than law firms and have been thinking about this for, for longer. So I think there are great learnings that many law firms can can have from partnering with their clients um partly just to show um perhaps people in the firm who are not as convinced that this is a really crucial matter for clients and again you know it could come down to affecting essentially the bottom line of 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 the uh the, the partnership and and its profitability so essentially diversity is becoming one of the more significant factors for clients when choosing law firms Yes, yes, for sure. I mean, I would I would caveat that with saying 
some clients are taking this more seriously than others. I think there's there's still a number of clients who maybe talk a good game in terms of diversity, but are not structurally bringing it quite as well to all of their processes processes around uh, selecting suppliers as as they could do. Um, but I think there's a number of um, tools coming in to help both law firms and clients do this more successfully. I mean, one notable one is um, the model diversity survey, which was developed by the American Bar Association in the US. Um, Interlaw, who is across a sector, a a legal sector-wide diversity organisation that I actually do some work with, we are bringing the model diversity survey to the UK legal profession. And what that does is ask a standardised set of quite stringent questions that clients can give to their suppliers. Um, For law firms, it means that they only have to prepare one set of uh, data to share with with all their clients who are using the model diversity survey. So uh, it means there's not, you know, you're not having to perhaps cut your data in, in lots of different ways for lots of different asks from different clients um and you know that that is i think that that sort of more stringent ask is forcing law firms to perhaps really look at structurally you know why don't we have more ethnically diverse partners um why are more women not making it to partnership level or indeed further on onto leadership level in in our law firm because those are the sort of questions that um that clients are beginning to ask. And I, I think, you know, the US is is often, you know, the sort of avatar in, in this realm. And many of the US GCs have been more vocal on this topic over the years. And um, it, it, in my work with the US, what I see now happening is a lot of American GCs really pushing back on things like, you know, well, who is actually getting the origination credit for my matters? Is it is it the diverse people doing the work on my matters or is it perhaps a historical relationship with a a white middle-aged partner who I have never actually seen as a client because law firms can have these slightly quirky ways of, 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 you know, who actually owns the relationship versus who's doing the work. And, you know, we're actually seeing clients in the US asking some of those hard questions about who is getting paid what uh, for for the work they're doing for me, um, and in some cases making interventions in that. I mean, notably Walmart, who has for a long time as an organisation been a, a, a quite a driving force in terms of diversity, particularly its its legal team, have introduced um, basically a, a rule for their panel firms that uh, you can have you have to if you if you if the relationship partner for Walmart is not diverse you have to introduce another relationship partner who is diverse so it's ensuring that that key client relationship is going to be held with at least a part of it will be held with a, a diverse lawyer within the law firm interesting and so a sort of an element for lawyers of increasing diversity within the firm is through recruitment yes so, but the phrase that you often hear in relation to this is uh, something along the lines of "we just hire or promote the best person for the job, regardless of race or gender." Do you think that this merit-based approach is a good objective measure for firms? 
Absolutely not. Uh, the merit argument always makes me so angry. I literally want to scream <laughs> when I hear it. Um, and I think the reason is, um, if, if, if that were truly the case, we would have a lot more diversity in the legal profession than we do. Um, I think the, what the merit argument has embedded in it is a lot of assumptions and a lot of biases. And if you actually unpick it, what the merit argument is saying at its heart is if you're not if you're not making it in the legal profession and you're diverse you're just not good enough um and we know that that is not the fact um merit uh talent success whatever way you want to cut it is not a purely objective uh measure it's determined by the people who are creating the structures of the organisations. And the fact is that there are lots of unspoken um, nuances that weave into the the notion of success. And this is not just true of law. This has been true of, of many industries that, you know, there's this element that people will think, you know, well, you have to speak a certain way or look a certain way, maybe have a certain type of name um, I, as the person hiring you, have to feel comfortable with you. I have to feel that you're somebody like me. And all of those things start to cut into what merit looks like, which may not actually be, you know, true merit in who can do the the function of the role, whatever that role may be, in the best way. Um, And, you know, I think that what's been increasingly interesting has been the use of tools like contextual recruiting in the legal profession. Because, frankly, if you send your child to a top tier private school, you know, if I sent my son to a top tier private school and he didn't at least have a pretty good shot of getting into Oxford or Cambridge, I would probably be asking for my money back. Now, if we if we look at the experience of a young person who's maybe um, maybe their A-level grades aren't so good, but they're obviously outperforming the average for their school and maybe they're doing that while they're also working, while they're maybe you know, assisting with caregiving for younger siblings, you you put all that into the mix. And frankly, the grit, the resilience, the the, the sheer skills of being able to multitask, being able to think strategically that that young person in the more difficult situation is bringing to the table, surely that's got to be attractive for any employer. So I think this, this notion of merit is starting to be redefined. I don't think it's it's being redefined perhaps as much as it could be. Um, but I, I do very much feel that the merit argument is it's often a lazy argument to really not do anything about inclusion and diversity. Um, and I think that once you start to unpick what lies behind it it's it's quite an insidious and, and actually quite quite a nasty argument to, and its basis uh, it's got lots of uh, lots of assumptions in there that um that that really we shouldn't be dealing with in in the 21st century but sadly we still have to so we're slowly seeing law firms move away from this merit-based approach then I think some, but I, I think it's still there. I mean, I think both here and in the US, you see a lot of focus on only hiring from particular universities, only looking at um, at peak candidates with particular A-level grades. 
Um, I think some law firms are starting to make a stand and starting to look at things differently. But I think it is still hard for many candidates if you're not coming in perhaps through one of the more traditional routes for law. And I think that the more that there are avenues that that candidates can come in who perhaps don't have, you know, three A's at A level or have been to a Russell Group University, that will be a good thing because there's so much talent that is being lost. I mean, there's nothing wrong, obviously, with getting three A's at A level and going to a Russell Group University. Mm. But I think also there may be many reasons that candidates cannot go to a Russell Group University. Um, It could be, you know, family family um, background, you may, you may have particular obligations, which mean you can't actually move away from your hometown. So you may go to whatever the local higher education institution is, whether that's Russell Group or, or not. So um, I think taking a much more broad-based view um, and a nuanced view of the talent that, that are coming, that's coming in the door is, has actually been shown to produce really good results for law firms and um, yeah I think I think any sort of schemes or processes that in- can encourage that are, are just going to you know help the profession so much and, and AccuTrainee is, is is a great example of that thankfully. So we did hear that um, AccuTrainee are getting involved in promoting diversity and inclusion they are in the process of launching a scholarship scheme to promote uh, people from uh, minority backgrounds. What sort of impact does this have on the legal industry and on diversity and inclusion? Well, I think that it just provides um, a a way of considering some great diverse talent that for a number of reasons that, that some of these young people are not breaking through through the traditional routes. And I think one of the key aspects with the AccuTrainee scholarship offering is the fact that clients are being quite heavily involved in it and and, and in, in many cases clients are driving it. And I think, you know, we often see that when clients are involved in really pushing these efforts, then law firms start to sit up and, and take notice. And and I think generally outside of the the scholarship program, AccuTrainee has a much higher um, diversity ratio than than many other training um, contracts, for example, and you know many of its uh, many of its uh, participants are of very high quality and often get retained by those companies or law firms that they work with. So it's obviously not that just because they're coming through a slightly different route, they're in any rate lesser than those who come through the normal traditional training contract route. Um, and I think, you know, the ability to get the in-house experience is, is very key with the AccuTrainee offering, both within the normal offering and the scholarship offering, because a number of, you know, I do a lot of work with GCs and a number of GCs I work with say that they feel the experience of being a lawyer in-house and the experience of being a lawyer in a law firm are becoming more and more divergent in in the sort of skills and the outlook you need. So I think that programmes that are giving young people um, exposure to the potential for exposure to, to, to both, both, uh, both sides, as it were, are, are really interesting in terms of producing 
perhaps a, a new breed of, of more rounded lawyers. Indeed, there's a there's a, a whole group in the industry um, converging around this notion of the O-shaped lawyer being a, a new model for for training and for development of uh, of what a what a lawyer needs to look like. So essentially, the Accutrainee approach and through their scholarship will not only sort of improve diversity and inclusion, but also you're producing a more rounded, a more modern lawyer. I think you are, yeah. I I mean, I do think there is increasingly a a big difference in the experience of working in-house to the experience of working in a law firm, much more so than maybe 10 or certainly definitely 20 years ago. And I think a lot of lawyers are see in-house as a really positive choice now, whereas they used to be disparaging thoughts, you know, that it was for people who couldn't make it in law firms. And I think the difference in in the role of the in-house lawyer and particularly the general counsel mean that it, it's, it's certainly not lesser. In fact, I think, you know, it's... It, it's it's a really interesting challenge, particularly if you want to be more commercially focused, perhaps not not as tied to being a technical lawyer, but more of a, a business partner who happens to have legal expertise. I'm very pleased and excited to announce that AccuTrainee is launching its very own scholarship program to address the disproportionate underrepresentation of lawyers with black heritage from less socially mobile backgrounds. In 2012, AccuTrainee introduced an innovative concept to the legal industry, creating a unique training contract for aspiring solicitors. And to date, we've helped over 100 legal professionals qualify as solicitors, giving them opportunities at a wide range of companies from FTSE 100 to startups, large city law firms and boutiques. We've always been committed to improving diversity in the legal profession from the get-go. And while 38% of our current trainee cohort identify as BAME, we also recognise there continues to be a disproportionate underrepresentation of lawyers from black heritage and less socially mobile backgrounds. And this is why we've come together with some DNI supporters and a number of forward-thinking organisations to offer this unique opportunity to qualify as a solicitor through our scholarship programme. Our new scholarship programme is more than just work experience. It's been created to offer deserving candidates from minority backgrounds uh, with black heritage and less socially mobile, the opportunity to have their solicitor examinations paid for whilst also gaining the necessary work experience in in in-house legal departments or law firms to help them achieve their dream of becoming a qualified solicitor. Our law firm and in-house legal department sponsors contribute to the cost of the SQE fees or potentially if they've already taken their LPC towards their LPC fees and also provide the work experience for these individuals to be able to satisfy the requirements of becoming a newly qualified solicitor. AccuTrainee's role in all of that is to 
facilitate that process and provide the training, mentoring and satisfying the regulatory requirements as the training provider. You can apply through our website and I'm pleased to say the programme has no minimum grade requirements. We are simply looking for talented university graduates who identify as having black heritage with a genuine passion and interest in the law and a strong desire to qualify as a UK solicitor. The current scholarship programme is definitely more suited to those candidates who aspire to work in commercial law and we are ideally focusing on candidates who have a genuine interest in the fintech industry. You can find all the details on the AccuTrainee website in our careers portal where the scholarship programme details are listed and you can apply directly on a form by clicking apply for the scholarship. What we really want to gain is an understanding of their personal history and achievements to date and also the journey candidates have taken, any obstacles they may have had to overcome and where they want their legal career to go. Following the application there will be an assessment by myself and the team to judge the individuals that we take through to the next phase and then they will be invited to an assessment centre. During that assessment centre we will be assessing candidates intellectual, analytical and problem solving skills, their attention to detail, their communication and their organisational skills and we focus on resilience, commercial awareness, their teamwork and their passion for law and dedication to succeed. So we've spoken a lot about sort of recruitment in a diverse manner, but an important aspect of all diversity and inclusion policy is retention and um, the actual inclusivity of it. Yes. Now, earlier you mentioned that structural barriers within law firms, within the legal profession, have an impact on this. Could you explain a bit about what you meant by that? Yeah, I mean, I think... um... I think it's very interesting that, you know, um, if, if I just step aside from, from law for a moment, that, that often if we think, um, you know, say a young person um, who is black British, who maybe comes from a working class background and manages to um, get a, a place at um, Oxbridge, you know, we will sort of think that, wow, you know, they've, they've quote unquote made it. I mean, it's interesting that through much of the, the, the greater visibility um, as a result of, of, of George Floyd and, and Black Lives Matter, the greater visibility of debates around racism is that we're hearing experiences from, from people, both current and past students at, at places, you know, at many prestigious universities that actually there's a lot of racism in in the institution and I think that can be true of many organizations and many institutions that there's a lot of um you know cultural factors that can make it difficult for you to feel like you fit in if you don't conform to the lived experience of the majority group 
um, in that organisation, in that institution. Um, and I think if, if we look at law, we've got, um, we've got a profession where it's predominantly white, it's predominantly middle or upper class. I mean, the percentages of people within the legal profession who went to a fee-paying school are way, way higher than, than across the average population. And I think that, you know, I, I think what we have to be aware of, though, is that there's, um, you know, the term white privilege has been talked about probably a lot more um, widely this year than it has ever been before, or the, or the term privilege in general, is that privilege is is not something you choose as an individual. It doesn't mean that you're a sort of quote unquote bad person if you have um, any form of privilege or you have any form of advantage. It's an accident of birth. Um, but I think what that can do is create um, a sense of, of being, a sense of um, a creating of the way things are done, your culture, that perhaps you, if you're, if you're of that identity group that's privileged, you just can't sort of, you're blinded to it. You perhaps can't see that some of these things might be quite difficult if you are not of the same identity group. Um, and I think that what we need to do is, is, is to break some of that down. Now, a key point is obviously the um, recruitment phase, and we've talked about that, but the actual experience of being in, um, say, a law firm or, or indeed any organisation, uh, what we've seen as a result of, um, you know, um, Me Too um, and Black Lives Matter is an interrogation of some of the um, the social and cultural bonds that are creating um, informal networks within organisations that can privilege certain groups and perhaps... Um, you know, work against other groups who who are not of of the majority majority class within that organisation. Um, I think if you just look at classic things like you know when uh, I don't know how much this happens anymore, but the notion of of playing golf with with clients, you know, or activities that might exclude certain lawyers from being part of it. Um, I mean, one interesting thing with me too was it sort of shone a lot light on the fact that you know socializing um can be quite hard for women in law and you know it can have certain quite dangerous pitfalls associated with it um and i think what's healthy is is you are beginning to see some law firms take account of that and look at you know and indeed clients you know pushing back on some of the traditional avenues for client entertaining and try and find ways of engaging with their legal suppliers which which are you know um more inclusive more open to everybody and and this is you know it's not just about male or female you know it's being inclusive to everyone you know if you have social events that are very focused on consumption of alcohol that's that's going to immediately disadvantage anybody who's muslim anybody who just doesn't drink because of their own personal preference or health reasons. Um, so it's, it's, you know, sort of thinking, thinking as broadly and inclusively as possible. Now, I think what's going to be really interesting, Hobbs, is, is, is you know, what's going to happen after COVID. Um, because 
for for many years there was this pushback on the notion of flexible working um you know law was traditionally a profession with a lot of presenteeism sort of baked into the law firm experience covid has sort of within you know within a couple of months it had to- well within a couple of weeks it had totally blown that up and i i think that's going to be interesting to sort of see what that does i, I think that's going to be particularly key um if it if it's approached in the right way for for women um because it, it is the fact that there's a there's generally a big drop off um uh, you know there's a, a lot of women come into the profession i think 60% of law graduates are now women, but there's a big drop off around partnership, uh, the partnership uh, point in, in people's careers in law firms, uh, which often coincides with, with, with women wanting to have children. And I think it will be interesting if, if this new way of working that COVID has, that the sort of widespread acceptance of, of new ways of working that COVID has introduced means that this can be utilised in the right way to mean that parenthood for both genders doesn't have to be an either or with it's it's either being a committed parent or being successful in your career or you've got to sacrifice aspects of one to to succeed in the other. I think that would be a really a really positive outcome of of what's been quite a uh, a stressful year for everybody. Hmm. So we mentioned here um, about parenthood. And in research for this episode, I've come across a lot of stories written by uh, lawyers who are mothers or fathers mentioning the long work hours and sort of that element of the legal profession having a real detrimental impact on them as parents. How much of that do you think, even with sort of the changes that COVID have brought about, how much do you think that's going to change or can be changed? I think it is starting to change. And I think there's a couple of things that, that that are changing it. I think one is perhaps a greater awareness from clients um, and, again, clients bringing more focus on this. I mean, for example, we've had the Mindful Business Charter, which was started by Barclays and includes a number of um, both law firms, but other organisations, including even um, one private equity um, firm, which is, a, you know, private equity is an industry that has been very, very hardworking and, and, and focused on, um, on you know, uh, being present. Um, what the Mindful Business Charter has done is really produce a, a series of guidelines and, and, you know, sort of cutting through perhaps the difference between, you know, is this actually a crisis situation where people need to work 24-7 or is this more of a habit that we've got into? And, and I think it's interesting. I actually um, wrote an article recently um, talking to to some male general counsel about their uh, their sort of relationship with the notion of masculinity in law and um you know all of them said they felt that you know when they worked as associates at law firms there were there was this kind of macho-ness around the sort of hard-working long hours culture that you know they said looking back with hindsight they, they wondered whether all of those all-nighters or weekends were really necessary, that there was almost this sense of, you know, the sort of performance of, of, 
of working incredibly hard to to sort of show to clients you know how how intensely their suppliers were were working for them um and i think you know it's it's certainly something that's become a byword for law, which isn't such of a byword in, in some other service professions like accountancy. And that's perhaps because accountants have more of a team culture. And I, I do wonder if if clients are sort of being becoming more conducive to that notion of, of the team culture, that it doesn't feel like it's all got to be one individual who's handling everything and and you know clients realizing that they can't on the one hand ask for that for greater diversity and inclusion but then be expecting sort of 24 7 responsiveness from the same group of people all the time you know something's got to give in in the middle there so um i think that's that's one factor um the other factor is just the generational fit issue um i think that you know it's been well documented that millennials and and gen z are are perhaps less focused on the traditional notion of a career in the old-fashioned sense of perhaps getting one job and working in it for 20 30 years and and climbing the professional ladder in in exactly the same way and realizing younger generations are realizing the need for greater balance um, in you know what they do more generally outside of work um, and I, I do hear stories that you know that that associates are just not as willing to um, just blithely drop everything and and work all night as, as as they used to be and I think that those two things coming together the recognition from clients that they've got to really lead the way in um, producing a response that it's not just all about, you know, a 24-7 always-on culture and a generational shift more widely in society that people are recognising that, you know, no, my my work can't be my be-all and end-all. And and it's interesting, I think there are a number of stories coming out of COVID that, that, that are suggesting that, you know, because of this crisis that, that we've all been through, that, you know... Um, People are, you know, taking a bit, taking stock of, of what's important to them. And I think that, you know, the balance part is, is going to become increasingly key. Um, and I, I think that will help greater inclusivity in the profession. And it, it's certainly good for everybody because I, I don't think it can be a coincidence that we've got a profession that's perhaps, you know, um, at the senior levels still more predominantly white and male and yet white men are suffering a lot from stress from mental health issues um and those sort of challenges and you know that's that's been a real factor i think for many law firms the the mental health crisis that that many of their individuals have faced and you know it 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 all sort of comes together you know you need to you need to think about the culture in which people are working um, and change all of these things together. It's not just about bringing more of one group of people in. You've got to really think about the situation in which you're placing them. So at the very beginning of this episode, we looked at the business benefits to an increase in diversity. 
I was wondering if you could sort of elaborate more on the benefits to the individual or the personal benefits to having a more diverse workforce. Well, I think it's exactly the same. I mean, I think it's going to produce um, an environment that is just more conducive to lots of different ideas, more creativity. It will generally, I think, produce a healthier culture um, and I think a more empathetic culture. Um, Empathy and uh, creativity and some of those right brain skills are increasingly being seen throughout all of business as skills that leaders need to develop more of that there's a lack of those skills in the c-suite um and it's interesting that a a recent survey of uh of hundreds of of individuals uh, around the culture of their workplaces found that most people would either take a cut in pay or an increase in hours if they could guarantee that their actual workplace culture was more empathetic or continued to be empathetic if it already was. And I think I think it's been shown that the more that you get to know people who are different from you and have closer relationships with them that produces more empathy in you as an individual you understand them more Um, that also produces more creativity and the ability to collaborate better the more you have deeper relationships with those you're working with and really know them as a team versus a group of people who happen to work together you just do get better outcomes Um, no matter how brilliant you are as an individual um, you know, the most brilliant mind will never produce as good as good a solution as five, perhaps less brilliant minds working together. It's just that that sort of super additivity, as a, as a friend of mine likes to call it, you know, that that brings uh, more ideas um, and more spark to what you're doing. So I think that that will that's the real um, the real benefit for individuals. Just just having a sort of culturally more healthy workplace. And how responsible are individuals then for promoting diversity and inclusion in their own company? I think it all really comes down to the individual. And I think no matter what policies your uh, company has, unless it's really being carried through by individuals, you know, policies are just sort of words on a page that it's behaviors that really matter and I think you know for example we talk about tone from the top and leadership well the tone from the top with leaders has to be carried through to the leader's behavior and research has shown that if you've got a situation where an organization's leadership are sort of saying diversity matters to us or climate change matters to us or whatever and their behaviours are not matching up to their rhetoric, then that employees actually find that worse than if they didn't say anything at all. It's the hypocrisy that that I think employees find difficult. So you need leaders who not only say it, but live it. But then it all comes down to individuals as well. Uh, There's lots of research that's shown that often the challenges in companies lies not with leadership, but actually with more middle management ranks, that, that it's those people that are the leaders that we really really need to make sure um, are getting the training, are understanding how the policies might work in practice so that they're really enacted. And 
And it also just comes down to the way that colleagues work together. Um, what's been shown in, in many of the, uh, the, the, the issues that have come to the fore over the last few years, I, I would cite Me Too as an example, that it's got to the, the notion of bystander um, bystander culture has become very key and that, you know, the, the idea that we've got to create in our organisations individuals who will be able and willing to speak up if they see something that's not right. And that, again, comes down to culture. We've got to have a culture where an individual can feel it's okay to say to even their manager, hey, that joke was perhaps a little off colour you know, those of us who are not white or those of us who are women, that joke didn't make me feel very good. Now, you know, I, I think the the fact cannot be overemphasized that sometimes, you know, we're all human. We all do and say stupid things. And sometimes we need that pointed out to us in the right way. We may say something and, and just think, oh, I didn't mean to say that or that sounded better in my head than when I said it out loud. And, and I think that, you know, we, we have to realise that, that, that some of the institutional um, issues that have developed is it's not some kind of conspiracy of, of you know, the, the, the patriarchy or, or, the, or the white sort of supremacy kind of coming together to put people down. A lot of it is, is just people saying stupid things or not thinking about the human effect on others of course when you get lots of people doing that it does produce a structure which creates a culture which perhaps says that you know you are not going to feel comfortable as a, a person who is is different in some way um so i think that you know there is a real responsibility responsibility of all of us as individuals to speak out and it's hard it's happened to me i've been on calls or in instances where Sometimes when stuff happens, you almost don't, you almost, it can be happening and you're thinking, is this really happening? Is this person really saying that? <laughs> and I think sometimes you have to live through a few of those situations to kind of feel prepared for the next time it happens. And and I, I was quite heartened in, um, you know, sort of, uh, you know, when you, you we, we've recently had Black History Month, obviously, here in the, the UK. And you know, when you look into some of the, um, the, the the kind of political protests like Rosa Parks, um, you know, it wasn't some of these things were quite planned as and so, you know, as a result of perhaps lots of other experiences. But, you know, when somebody decided to make a stand, they were prepared to do that. So I think that's a note for all of us as, as individuals in our organisations that, you know, there will be things that happen that we won't, you know, we won't always uh, be able to make a stand partly because we, we, we just may not sometimes believe it's happening or, or, or may feel unconfident. But, you know, if we can just keep thinking about this and, you know, that that's the key to be thinking about the other person, thinking about how things feel Um you know, and, and, and just realising that it starts with you. It's, it's, it's not somebody else's problem. It's everybody's problem. Well, I think that's a really good note um, to draw things to a close. But before we go, I would uh, like to ask you a question that I ask all my guests. 
If you had trained as a lawyer and you were starting out on your legal career today, which law firm would you want to work for and why? Mm, that's um, uh, I don't know if I could pick any one law firm because I um, <laughs> I, I, I have worked for some wonderful law firms in, in my course, um, yeah. my focus as a consultant, and and they all have many you know many good things about them. Um, I would probably, I mean, given I spend so much time thinking and writing about in-house lawyers, I'd probably say I'd go in-house. Um, and I think, you know, that more so than, than, than perhaps some years ago, going in-house straight away would be an option. So, uh, so yeah, I'd, uh, I'd choose to become an in-house lawyer and, and put, put into practice um, lots of the stuff that I've written about over the years and, and see if, yeah, hopefully my ideas actually work. Fantastic. Well, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you, Hobbs. Um, it's been a pleasure to have you on. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Conversations in Law. If you'd like to support me and the show, please rate it five stars on the iTunes store and follow the show on your podcast app. If you'd like more information about this episode and any other episodes, then take a look at the trainee blog on the AccuTrainee website, www at qtrainee.com. Thank you for listening.